Welcome to Blitzcast, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. Welcome to another episode of Blitzcast. This is your host, Brennan Boland, joined alongside my partner, Ed Hunt. How are you doing today, Ed? Pretty good. How are you doing, Brendan? I'm doing fantastic, my man. You know, coming off of another fantastic week of football, it uh, it seems to only get better. We're only in week four, but this has been one of my favorite seasons so far in recent memory. We got new teams on the come up, and, you know, we've had some great matchups. And one of those matchups being Tom Brady versus Bill Belichick, the game that we've all been waiting for. You know, NFL was talking about it nonstop. I mean, if you didn't see that this game was coming up, you were living under a rock. And it wasn't short of its hype at all. It uh, it definitely went different than a lot of people were expecting. Very low-scoring game, but, I mean, you couldn't have drawn this one up better. You, you were in a rainstorm back at New England, came down to the fourth quarter with a, with a big decision by Bill Belichick. I mean, it, it doesn't get better than that. So Tom Brady was able to come out victorious, but you know, what, is this, what does this mean for Tom Brady? How big of a win is this to get it over his coach that he spent 20 years with, Ed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the question was is when when Brady left Belichick, the big question is is you know who who was the ma- who was the magician of the two, right? And I think Brady has proven that he was the magician of the two. But uh, you know, I, I I still think that Belichick should go down as the greatest coach of all time, at least for now. Oh yeah, I I cannot argue with that at all. I mean, Brady Brady has proven that he can win on a different team. You know, Bill Belichick. Obviously, he's not working with as much as uh, Tom Brady is with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But, you know, I, I do want to give Bill his credit because I I said it in the last podcast. I thought Tampa Bay was going to run over them. Uh, I really did. I just thought offensively Tampa Bay had the weapons. They had the matchups. But, you know, Bill Belichick proved why he was Bill Belichick. Um, and I, I understand that it was in a, you know, a rainstorm. But, you know, Tom Brady played in New England for 20 years. He's been in that type of weather. So Bill Belichick proved that, you know, he... He is he is a mastermind, but Brady Brady proved that he was more of the Batman, and Bill Belichick could be the Robin per se. But um, want to give both of them their credit. But I just I don't know if you saw, but after the game, um, Tom Brady, you know, he spent spent a big deal of time talking to everybody else, and Bill Belichick, uh, you know, he kind of had that quick hug. But they they went and back and talked into the locker room for quite some time, and a lot of people thought this this relationship was you know completely severed, you know since he left New England, and this was the first, you know, interaction they've had since then, and Tom Brady came out yesterday and said that they had a great talk, it was, you know, positive and going in the right direction, so it's nice to see that relationship still there, but this this isn't a bad loss for New England. I think this kind of proves that you have a lot of, you know, guys that you could build upon. Mac Jones really proved himself this game. I mean, if you're a New England fan or even just New England players in general, can you be upset with this loss? I'm I'm not upset. I mean, it was a missed field goal that lost this game. Um, you know, and and Dan Bailey is you know historically a very good kicker. So I I don't think that's the problem. What I take what I take away from this is that Mac Jones is definitely. I mean, he's he's the prototypical. Like when you watch his film, you see his style, what his strengths and weaknesses are. Like the Josh McDaniels offense is built for Mac Jones, right? Like it's just, you know, I mean Brady Brady did it better. Brady, you know, we'll we'll go back and we'll say Brady did it better than Mac Jones, but Mac Jones is that quarterback for that Josh McDaniels offense. No, I agree with you. He was he was sitting back there and he was under pressure the entire night. I mean, he was getting absolutely banged up. He got hit every single play and he stood in there and he delivered. And I, I think that that was by far the most impressive game I've seen out of, you know, any rookie quarterback this season. And to go against a defense of that caliber and, you know, hold your poise. He looked like a veteran quarterback. He really did. And I agree with you. He's the perfect person to be in this system, running Josh McDaniel's system. You have to get the ball out quick. You have to be accurate and you have to be decisive. And, you know, he proved that he was all those things. The one thing, and I understand it was a really bad weather game, but like I mentioned last time, my only concern with you know him running that offense is you kind of lack that big play, that explosiveness aspect of your offense. You're you're very 
you know, you can get completions and you can make conversions. And, you know, that's what the Patriots have kind of thrived on the last 20 years. But, you know, in games like that, you could really benefit from having that big time play. And they just they don't necessarily have the team built for that. But the the biggest thing that impressed me about Mac Jones is you knew he was going to throw the ball every single play. I mean, the Patriots finished with literally one negative one rushing yard and Mac Jones was able to sit there and deliver strikes nonstop. And to do that against a defense that, you know, just 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 won the Super Bowl is it's incredibly impressive. You know, week four as a rookie, I understand that you've been coached by the greatest coach of all time, but you you can't ask for any more than that. That was I, I don't think any other rookie quarterback would have would have done half that job in that situation. Uh you could just see the confidence level with Mac Jones and I really think that that's a that's a young star in the making and give it a couple years but that Patriots team is is going to come back on the rise. I just that you don't see that type of confidence in that type of game from a, a quarterback that's you know in his fourth career start. It was just extremely impressive to me. I mean, in that game I I might even argue that Mac Jones impressed me more than Brady and you know not not to say that Brady didn't, you know, go out there and win that game but what what you were asking Mac Jones to do and situationally with zero run game, I really think Mac Jones outperformed like performed better than we thought he would and Brady kind of performed worse than I thought we would. I mean, what what does this win mean for Mac or this uh this performance mean for Mac Jones? Well, I mean he's he's the entrenched starter and you know he's he's gonna execute that offense. Uh you know, I mean, I mean, they're gonna, you know, the Patriots will be in sort of, you know, cheap quarterback land for a little while. And, um, you know, they, they spent a lot in free agency, but they do need to build a team around Mac Jones for sure. And, you know, he, he still has some development to do. I mean, he's, you know, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, Josh McDaniels offenses, you know, predicated on, you know, making quick decisions and, I don't. I don't think this Patriots offensive line is the same as it's been. I mean, that was one thing that Brady had a lot of his years was that he had great offensive lines, um, and you know he won at the line of scrimmage. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Belichick kicking that fifty-six yarder in that weather. I know you're a guy that likes to you know take what's given to you, but in that situation, it's it's that's a that's a tough field goal to ask and. Mac Jones has been, you know, he's been really good at converting. And, you know, he's able to get easy completions. I understand if you don't get it, you lose that game. But that's a very tough field goal to ask. Are you are you happy with the field goal call? Are you are you rocking with that call still? Yeah, I mean that that field goal wins the game. Uh, you know, so I I mean I mean I I I believe you win the game as soon as you can, right? Like you you don't you don't leave it up to chance, right? Like you don't you don't just, you know, move and move and move, right? Like I think the second you can win a game, you do. I mean, I honestly I you know, I mean Monday morning quarterback, you know, you're going to say he missed the field goal. He should have went for it. I mean, that's Monday night morning quarterback hindsight's 2020. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, one of the best kickers historically and it's 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 a chance to win the game, you know. Like you just mentioned too, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um, that's if they don't convert that, they lose that football game. So um, I like I like the chance to you know, Tom Brady's here. We're beating Tom Brady. This is our one shot to do it. I respect the call. Um, you know, it would have been. I mean, oh, I sorry. just want I just want to say. I mean, part of the, part of the Belichick system is always to have a good kicker, right? Like Venetary. You know, Goskowski, like it's it's always it's always strong kicking game. Like that's always a position they invest in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because when it comes down to it, you need to make the big kick, even if even if it's won a game, you have to ask for it. And um, unfortunately, if and you know, if if the weather situation's not like that, Tampa Bay probably loses that football game. Yeah, and I mean, you know. <laughs> If if I'm Bill, I want to win that game so bad. I mean, that's you know, I think the reason he's 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 play, he's still out there is because he wants to prove that he can win without Brady, right? I mean, that's that's really the the storyline that he wants to put out there at the end of his career. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because um, I know, especially with a lot of people that I I talk to and communicate with, people think Brady was you know the true mastermind behind that. And, um, it's kind of kind of taken a little bit of a hit on Bill Belichick's legacy, but you know, obviously, people that are very knowledgeable in their football, they they know Bill Belichick gets his credit. But um, this this would have been a huge statement game for Bill, and uh, I know he's you know he's the type of person to say we're on to next week. But I know I know this one's gonna sting a little more than than any other loss. This was probably one of the biggest you know statement games for his legacy of his career, and 
Um, I, like I've mentioned, he wasn't working with, you know, really half the team that the Buccaneers were working with. So I don't, I don't even really want to say that he bossed this game. He, he proved me wrong. I, I, like I mentioned, I thought they were going to get steamrolled and he proved me completely wrong. This, I was, I was biting my nails because I, I was, I sounded confident when I said it and, um, he, he proved me wrong. So I just, I, I have all the respect in the world for Bill Belichick and still number one in a mile by my book. Yeah, there were two things that happened after that game. That I mean, the hug. I mean, that 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 picture says a thousand words. I respect the fact that Belichick. I mean, he commissioned a study on Tom Brady, and he found that you know with Jordan, and I think in Tiger that they they thrive from conflict, but that Brady thrive from love and connection. And for him to give him a hug like that and just you know support his former quarterback, that was. That was the ultimate sportsmanship move from a coach who really was never that was never his moniker. That was never his mon you know, that was never what he was known for, right? That was never his MO was to be the supporter. I mean he was all he was always the cold, you know, you know, X's and O's, you know win you know, win at all costs coach. And I thought another thing that happened was is that they sat down and talked after the game. Actually, Belichick was in the Bucks locker room after the game and apparently they talked for 15 minutes and no no one really knows what they said to each other but when you watch sports i mean the you know to to hear that kind of thing happen i mean that's that that that's that's what makes me love sports no absolutely i got nothing but love and respect for bill even though um i i hate it watching them win all the time but uh like you said he was always kind of a cold shoulder guy you know i I've, I've seen him smile maybe 3 times in my entire <laughs> life watching him football and and you know to see him go out there and actually give him a hug even though it was a, it, it was a quick one it was still a hug you know and that's that's out of out of nature for bill and uh makes me makes me got a lot of respect moving on to college football we we had one heck of a week and some teams really proved themselves one team that i think proved themselves is maybe Arguably the best team in the nation is Georgia. Um, they were able to pull a blank on Arkansas. And I really think you could make a strong argument for Georgia being able to beat Alabama right now. I mean, what do you what do you think that game meant for Georgia Ed, to be able to knock off the a top ten team in Arkansas and give them a big zero on the scoreboard? I mean, that's unheard of in today's you know college football to blank two teams in the row in a row, even if one of those teams is Vanderbilt. I I, I will say though, I mean. Georgia is entrenched as number two, but I I do not. I mean, if, you know, if they go, if they play, you know, in mutual territory in the SEC championship, I'm going to be picking the Alabama Crimson Tide. I just think Nick Saban, you know, going against, you know, hit, you know, Kirby Smart. I'm going to I'm going to go Nick Saban in that game. You know, I think I think you know you just you put the Alabama offense versus the 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 Georgia defense. And I, I think the Alabama offense is going to come out and win. You know, I, I totally get where you're coming from because I just, I don't know if I like Georgia's offense enough to beat out Alabama. I will say Georgia just, their defense is so, it's, they, their special teams has scored more points than their defense has let up. I mean, if you just played a top 10 team and if that, if that stands after playing that top 10 team, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous to me. The thing is, Georgia just proved how good they can be in the trenches, and I think that's really kind of what you need to win championship games. And they threw for 75 yards and won the football game 27-0. And, you know, if that doesn't show dominance in the trenches, I don't know what was. They had four running backs run over 48 yards, and and I believe three of them were like over 60. So, And, and the biggest aspect of Georgia's game was being able to control that clock. They had the ball for 40 minutes of that football game, and um, you, it, you're going to make it really hard on any opponent you play. If you can keep the ball in your hands for that long, picking up first downs. I mean, I think they picked up 20 first downs that game. It, it's, it's, it's impressive football. And, um, I, I really hope we get to see that Alabama Georgia matchup. I don't, I don't see how that's not going to happen, but I'm, I can't confidently say that I, I, I kind of like to root for underdogs. So I can't confidently say, I don't think Georgia can beat out Alabama. I mean Georgia Georgia's defense, I mean best best defense in college football in three to five years, right? I, I, I definitely agree with that. It's just in today's college football in, in today's NFL, it's you know, when I was when I was a kid in the nineties it was 
great defense beats great offense, you know. And now I think really with the way the rules have changed, with the way, you know, offensives have changed and, you know, just being more of a passing sport, um, you know, especially at the college and NFL level, I, I, I really do think a team like Alabama will win. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get where you're coming from because if you – if you if it comes down to it and you're asking either Alabama or Georgia to drive down the football field to win a game, I see Alabama having a much easier time doing it. Georgia has such a dominant run game, but when it comes down to it, that run game is really their only dominant aspect of the offense. I mean, I don't have all the faith in the world in you know, whoever is going to be running quarterback for them, whether it be Sensei Bennett or Daniels. I don't necessarily have as much faith as I would in Alabama to you know march down the field in that type of situation. It's just, if it comes down to Georgia's defense, I see them having a chance. But you know, it, that would be that would be probably one of the best matchups we get in a long time. I mean, this Georgia team is is beyond impressive, um, and I really think that they have. Nakobe Dean is somebody I wanted to point out because every time I watch Georgia, that dude is in the backfield causing pressure or getting sacks or something. He's his his timing on his blitz is exceptional. I mean, his first step is ridiculous. He's the way he kind of just explodes off the ball, reminds me of the Browns' uh, second-round draft pick, Jeremiah Usu-Koromoa. Although they're not very similar players, the aspect of rushing the passer and his explosiveness is its seriously some of the best in college football. So in games like that, I really expect guys like him to you know, be a difference maker, and he proved that he can be. And Georgia just, they, they are staying true to their identity. They're a disciplined football team, great defense, can run the ball, and they're winning in the trenches. And you know, like I've said, that that's how you win championships. So when it comes down to it, I think it's going to be a close one. But uh, I want to I wanna take Georgia's defense. I, I really think Georgia's defense can take them all the way. You know, I also, I don't want to count Arkansas out. I, I, this is, this should not be a demoralizing game for Arkansas fans. Um, you're not one of the best starts you've had in, you know, almost a decade. So you got to, you got to give the Arkansas team credit. You're playing, like Ed mentioned, the probably the best defense in college football we've seen in the last two or three years. You, you knew Georgia was going to win this football game, but do you take this as a really bad loss if you're an Arkansas fan? Um, what does this mean for Arkansas as a team? Do you still see them finishing this season out dominantly? Well, I, I think if you're if you're that, you know, sort of leadership for the Arkansas Razorbacks, you kind of say, hey, you know, we lost to, you know, the number two team in the country. I, I think if you're Arkansas – what you want to do is you want to take the senior class and you want them to play a New Year's Six Bowl. I think that's what you zone in on. I don't think this is, you know, I mean, everyone's playing for a national championship, right? You're trying to win every game. But, you know, re- realistically, what I see from Arkansas is, is that I think a successful season is if they go to a New Year's Six Bowl and they win that game. I think I think that's what they need to zone in on. I don't think this team, I just don't think that on the offensive side of the ball, the Arkansas Razorbacks can can go to the playoffs. I don't think they're worthy, you know, worthy of that. I don't think they have the offensive firepower to do that. One thing I do want to mention about Georgia too, I mean, you know, in in this game was that Georgia Georgia really can't pass the ball. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they like especially with Stetson Bennett is like they they just they're not putting up points passing the ball and that that for me you know when you get when you get down to the last bit and you get into those big games and you get down to the last drive I don't trust JT Daniels to deliver in those key situations so if they get far enough into it that, that that's another reason why um, I think they're number two yeah no I I can see that and that's that has to be their biggest weakness on the football team and like you said, when it comes down to the big game and the big moment, that's where you need a strength. I mean, you can only ask so much out of your defense, especially if you're going to be, you know, competing for that number one spot in the, in college football. I mean, Alabama has proven that they're dominant in, you know, every aspect of that of that football team, even though um, defensively they're maybe not as dominant as they have been. But I mean, it's it's still one of the best in the in the country. So. And but like you were mentioning for Arkansas, getting to a bowl game is probably their best focus. I mean, they have they got some tough matchups coming up. You're going up against Mississippi, uh, Auburn. Um, I think you got Alabama, second to last game of the year. So Arkansas's got some big games coming ahead of them. But 
this 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 loss against Georgia should not be demoralizing. But for Georgia, this win against Arkansas should be very uplifting because Arkansas was a top ten football team, and you know they have a very dominant defense, and you're able to run it down their throat. They they're very good in the trenches and well as well, and you were able to prove that you were by far the more dominant team. But I did also I wanted to go over to maybe one of the biggest wins we're going to see in college football this year, and that's Cincinnati's win over Notre Dame. This might be the biggest win in program history for Cincinnati, or one of the biggest wins, and you finally knocked Notre Dame off of their incredibly long home win streak. What does this mean for Cincinnati? Do you see this being a team that sneaks its way into the playoffs? Gosh, I'm rooting for it, and I think I think they can do it. I, I really think that that's the, you know, people have picked it, and... Yeah, I mean, you look at the rest of their schedule and they're favored in every game. Um, you know, they don't play in, you know, a Power 5 conference. So, you know, they're, they're, it's not like that SEC factor, right, where you're just, you're just you know, you're just playing somebody good every week and eventually someone's going to someone's gonna knock you off. You know, someone's going to be ready. I, I, I see a lot of things in the Cincinnati team to like. I, I love them on the defensive side of the ball. The defensive side of the ball deserves the game ball for their win over Notre Dame. Great pass rush, great cornerback play, great secondary play. I mean, this was a great defensive game at key positions for the Cincinnati Bearcats. Um, I thought Luke Fickle handled himself great. I mean, when he when he got up and won, I mean, he was cool. He was calm. He was collected. He showed respect for Brian Kelly, you know, what he did at Cincinnati. Brian Kelly was a Cincinnati Bearcats coach before he was hired at Notre Dame. He showed respect for him there. He called Notre Dame a top five team, you know. And and, and I know that, that there's a there's a strategic advantage. There's kind of a chess piece in there for Luke Fickle in the sense that if you know he, he he's thinking if he runs the table, you know he wants that committee to know that you know Notre Dame was a good team and that was the that was a worthy win and they can win big games and that they deserve to be in the college football playoff. I get that. But he showed total respect for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. I mean, he didn't go and disrespect them in South Bend. He respected that program's history. He came out with a win. And yes, I, I think I think it's pretty much consensus that that's the biggest win in Cincinnati's history. No, absolutely, Ed. And th- this Cincinnati team overall, like you, you mentioned the defensive side of the ball. But I like, yeah, they deserve the, uh, the, the game ball for this. But, you know, Desmond Ritter just, he proved that he's a winner. He said that Notre Dame wasn't going to be loud for long, and, you know, he proved it. I mean, he, he's awesome. He, currently, he has uh, the highest winning percentage for any starting quarterback in college football, and you know, this was a big game to hold him to. Uh, this isn't one you can really expect a win out of. Notre Dame had a winning streak for 1,400 days, 20 consecutive home games at Notre Dame, and you've, you're able to knock them off in probably your most important game of the year for Cincinnati. And, your biggest matchup. And one thing that really impressed me about Cincinnati is they were able to make factors, non-factors for Notre Dame, uh, especially a guy like Kyle Hamilton, who, who I think is one of the best defensive players in college football right now. And you, you showed that you, you attacked him on one of the touchdowns and you were able to score on him. So it just, it just shows that that team was coming out and they were going to win that football game with, with whatever it took. And to show that they were, they were okay with being the aggressors and taking shots at the most talented players on Notre Dame's football team. It showed me the type of quarterback Desmond Ritter is. I mean, that's that's an NFL level quarterback with that type of confidence, and you know, to to make that big of a statement to say it's not going to be loud for long. Uh, you know, when asked about or when told about how loud that stadium is, that's that's just awesome. That's that's something that you really want in a guy that you know could take you to the playoffs for the first time. And this this was such an impressive win. And I do want to point out that Notre Dame offensively. They are very, very, very underwhelming to me this year. And I think they have a very big situation with quarterbacks going on right now. Uh, I mean, I get Jack Cohen's your starter. Uh, it brings the more veteran presence to you, but he's just not playing how he needs to be. Jack Cohen uh, was 14 for 22 and had 114 yards. And that's, that's just not a good yards per attempt. And, you know, he, he was eventually got tweaked up a little bit and you brought in Drew Pine. Drew Pine. You know, although he was able to expand the playbook because he brings more mobility with his legs and I really think should be the one to be running that offense simply because he really does open up the playbook and you could see how one-dimensional that offense is with Jack Cohen. But Drew Pine, he was 9 for 22. 
Uh, it was his completion percentage is not good, but he had 143 yards. He had 30 more passing yards than uh than Cohen, who who had like five six more completions. So uh it just it's very conflicting. And then you had two interceptions early on in the game that you kind of you kind of were digging yourself out of a hole because of your bad quarterback play early. So it's you didn't have a run game. You didn't have a pass game. So you can't expect to dig yourself out of holes against teams that have, you know, a balanced football team, a team that can shut you down defensively and a team that can score. Uh, Notre Dame's going to struggle against matchups like these. And uh, I really think that this offensive showcase was kind of a blueprint on how you got to you how to beat Notre Dame for the rest of the year. You have to make them throw the ball because they simply can't do it right now. I think you bring up a great point about the quarterback play of Notre Dame. And certainly, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why Cincinnati was able to come out and win. You know, when you talk about Desmond Ritter, I mean, I want to talk about him as the draft prospect. This is this is a guy who, you know, I, I think I think scouts are going to like. You know, he comes off as a confident kid. Doesn't seem like a bad kid at all. You know, you kind of see the pictures of him and his mother's in the in the stands and, you know, which... Which, which I think, I think will, will will rub NFL scouts the right way. Um, as a quarterback, I, th- I think he's aggressive. I think maybe even too aggressive. But you know, he does everything well. He's got the strong arm. He throws with zip. You know, he's aggressive. Um, he's got great pocket awareness. Good pocket mobility. You know, he 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 can be that pocket quarterback. The only the thing is, is that ball placement and accuracy are the issues. And if you get this guy's mechanics, I mean. You know this this guy. You know if you could if you if you kind of you know you get the okay. You're in the GM's office and you get the okay from the QB coach and he says you know I can fix this kid's mechanics. I mean you know what's stopping you from taking him top fifteen? Absolutely. I mean he's like you said he's aggressive. He's composed. And if you fix that if you fix that accuracy, what what is holding you back? Like there's really nothing that I don't really love about Desmond Ritter. Like, especially as a prospect, especially for a team that, you know, kind of needs a rejuvenation. Like, he, he's a very exciting prospect, and he's a winner. He's taken a, you know, a college football program that's not historically very successful, and he, he has proven that he wins football games, Ed. Def- definitely. I mean, I, I forgot that aspect, but I mean, you know, when you talk about a guy who won in college, I mean, that this is a guy who, I mean, I think he has like, there's some stat about him being like the highest winning percentage in Bearcats history. I mean, and I, I don't even know if it's close. I mean, so he, he's, he's definitely been there for the glory days for the Bearcats. He, he's, he's made, he's made his, uh, you know, his head coach some money, uh, Luke Fickle. I mean, I think, I think, I think, you know, I, I mean, when 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 there's a round of firings, you know, when we get to end of December, January, and there's a round of firings, um, you know, Lou Fickle's name is gonna come up, right? Like it's gonna be it's gonna be one of the names talked about, and um, it'll be interesting to see if uh, you know, teams want to go into the college game and get those guys, you know, get the get the you know Iowa State coach Matt Campbell or you know go get a guy like Luke Fickle and um you know whether whether you want to do that or you want to you know you know go with a coordinator go with an offensive coordinator so you know both both scenarios are there while we're talking about Desmond Ritter as a prospect uh there there could be a very high chance that he's per, he's replacing your quarterback Ben Roethlisberger for the Pittsburgh Steelers I mean you know, he's close to Pittsburgh down there in Ohio. So, you know, you, you've talked about it. They're, they've probably been in touch a little bit, you know, and they I, I'm willing to bet they've looked uh, pretty deeply into Desmond Ritter as possibly a replacement or something. But, you know, from the play we've seen with Big Ben, it's it's going to happen. He, you almost, you have to, you have to replace him after this year. And I, I wouldn't be so sure to say that he even makes it the entire year without getting replaced by Mason Rudolph or somebody because it's been... It's been very hard to watch Ben Roethlisberger's play. You know, as a as a Cleveland Browns fan, I'm not too upset about it, but I know I know a lot of Pittsburgh fans are uh, having a hard time watching this because it's um it's not traditional Pittsburgh Steelers football. It's it's really hard to watch for a lot of people. And is this all on Big Ben? Do you think that Big Ben is kind of the sole issue of this team? I know there's offensive line issues, but does replacing Big Ben fix all of these issues? I don't I don't think it necessarily does. I th- I think you said it right there. This fixing this offensive line is going to be part of the formula. Um, I I 
I believe at this point that this is Ben Roethlisberger's last year in the NFL. I think, you know, he, I mean, I don't think the Steelers go very far. I think that, you know, at the end of the year, there will be a, you know, a large contingent of Steeler fans that want to say goodbye. And, you know, Ben, Ben's had a lot of injuries. I mean, he's got a hip injury now. I think he, you know, it was only a few weeks ago he had a, or a week ago he had a pec injury. This guy's, this guy's taking a lot of hits because you remember before they, before they drafted Marquise Pouncey and Marcus, you know, Marcus Gilbert and David DeCastro, I mean, they had a lot of offensive line issues. And when, you know, the young Ben Roethlisberger took a lot of hits, the guy's in a lot of pain. And, you know, he, I mean, he's been playing for, probably 18 years, you know, almost, you know, almost two decades. So, uh, you know, Ben, Ben, Ben has two rings. So I, I, I would not blame him if he wanted to walk away. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's just not effective like he has been. And I, I don't think that he should have to stay around while they rebuild the offensive line. I think you, I think, you know, in the next draft, you probably think, I, I don't want to say a draft before it happens because it never goes exactly how you plan it. But, I mean, right now I'm thinking, you know, maybe Desmond Ritter in the first round, like you said, and then maybe going and getting a couple couple linemen, you know, get getting some reinforcements on that offensive line, getting younger at that position. And I'd also like to see the Steelers maybe get a veteran uh, on that offensive line, you know, maybe get that you know, veteran left tackle or, you know, help them, help them at a key position because that, that's really, that's, that's a big issue for this Pittsburgh Steelers team because you know what their defense and, you know, TJ Watt has only so many years in his career. So you, you can't, you can't sit around and rebuild and rebuild and trust the process and trust the process. I mean, with Pittsburgh, it's got to be a quick turnover, right? Like the fans, the fans will get impatient. So you know, I, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, offensive line, you know, they're going to have the cap space. And I think, I, I think maybe drafting a guy like Desmond Ritter and uh, another, another rumor that's going around and, um, you know, the internet has really taken off on this, but Rogers likes Tomlin, Tomlin likes Rogers. What, what do you think of that rumor? I mean, it seems, it seems, it seems like more than a rumor. It seems like it's been confirmed with our eyes. Right. Yeah. I mean, you saw it on the sideline when, uh, Rodgers gave him a little smirk and Tomlin hit him back with the wink. You don't see that happening very often between opposing teams. And it just, why doesn't that make sense? I mean, Rodgers, you know the situation with Green Bay. He's out of there. You, If you get an offensive, if you fix some of those spots in the offensive line and you get Aaron Rodgers to, to go under center, I mean, that's that's one of the more impressive offenses in football. You have, if you're able to bring Juju back after this year, you have Juju, Claypool, uh, potentially Johnson still, and then Najee Harris, who you know slowly has proven that he you know can really be an effective running back in this league. I know with with the problems of the offensive line, he hasn't been able to come into full effect. But if you bring a guy like Rodgers in, it it just it makes more sense than a lot of other teams. I don't see why Rodgers himself would choose many other teams over Pittsburgh. I mean, you have a coach who has never gone worse than eight and eight. You you have a defense who is kind of struggling right now, but you know, at least roster wise is, is more impressive than a lot of other places that need a quarterback right now. So if, if, if Rogers is playing football again next year, I don't see why it wouldn't be with Pittsburgh. I, I would, I would love this. I, I mean, I just, you know, I'd love to see Rogers come in for the end of his career. I, I do hope that, you know, Aaron Rodgers respects the history of the Pittsburgh Steelers and says to Terry, at least, you know, if he's going to wear his number 12, at least, at least, you know, within the social media age, at least get the public blessing of Terry Bradshaw, who won four Super Bowls as the quarterback for your Pittsburgh Steelers. I, I just don't, you know, I, I just, I, I think, I think that number 12, I mean, that's, that that that'll always be Terry Bradshaw's number, and I I just I just you know Aaron Rodgers needs to come into Pittsburgh and you know respect the history and know that he's toward sort of towards the end of his career and that you know be respectful but also say hey uh, you know this is a team that's on the decline you know Ben had a bad year you know I'm I'm gonna bring back and you know I if he does all that I'm gonna buy an Aaron Rodgers Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. Yeah, I mean. As a Browns fan, I am hoping this does not happen. I I am dreaming that this I would be a very very upset man because you know right when we're starting to figure it out that would be that would be the Browns' luck to go out and get Aaron Rodgers. But um you know it it you can see with how with how the Steelers are calling games that 
they do not care about preserving Ben Roethlisberger for any longer than this year. They're like, you know, when asked about Ben Roethlisberger getting beat up, he said it's nothing new. But the thing is, he's a 39-year-old quarterback. And like you said, he's been in this league for 17, 18 years or something like that. So, and guess who has the second most yards uh, or most attempts per game? It's Ben Roethlisberger. So you're kind of you're counteracting yourself. You know, you you need to preserve Ben because he's dealing with this hip injury, this pec injury. But at the same time, you're asking him to throw the ball 40 times a game, and you could just see like the decisions and the throws Ben Ben is having to make. You know, he overthrew two uh, two touchdowns to Juju Smith-Schuster. And then I think in back-to-back weeks, he dumped the ball off at the line of scrimmage on 4th and 10. I mean, you've, he's, you've asked him to throw the ball 35 times. I, I bet you're, he doesn't want to throw the ball 25 yards on 4th and 10. Like, his body is it's taking a beating right now. So I just, with the play calling and how they're handling Ben Roethlisberger right now, it's, I have a really hard time. And I, I hate to say this. I never, like, wish injuries on anybody. I, never, ever. But it's just... He's dealing with injuries already, and you're asking him to do quite a bit more than you really should be right now. And I get the running game has not been effective with Najee Harris so far, but because um, you're only averaging 3.3 yards of carry, so it's you can't necessarily take that pressure off of Ben Roethlisberger. But it's just you're you're in a real sticky situation right now as as the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, really, the the true the true source of all your all these problems, like we've mentioned are really stemming from the offensive line. You can't get the run game going, but you can't get the pass game going, and vice versa. It's it's you're twenty eighth in the league in points per game. So you, you see you're you're struggling at winning in the trenches and it's translating over to pretty much every aspect of your football team. And uh going on down south in Jacksonville, we got we got quite a problem going on with Urban Meyer. This guy is he's lost his locker room it seems like and I, I don't wanna be you know, if, if if you Jacksonville fans didn't know it already, I don't want to be the one to tell you. If anybody has a chance to go 0-17 against Jacksonville, I mean, you're dealing with a rookie quarterback, probably one of the least talented, if not the least talented roster in football, and a coach that has commitment commitment issues to this football team. With, with all the actions that Urban Meyer has done this past weekend, how can this Jaguars football team have his back? How can they be motivated to go out and win football games? They're on the second longest losing streak in put in NFL history, and you know Urban Meyer's out doing the things he did. I mean, does is this completely lost for Urban Meyer? Does he have a chance to regain this locker room, or are the Jacksonville Jaguars already on their search for a new coach? Yeah, I, I think that Urban Meyer. I think his heart just wasn't in it, and um, you know, I mean, some people are just better suited for the for the you know for the college game, right? Like, I mean. Nick Saban didn't do well as a Miami Dolphins head coach. So um, some people are just built for the college game. You know, Urban Meyer's more of a recruiter. I mean, he recruited Tebow. He put those Florida teams together. He put those Ohio State teams together. And that's going to be his legacy. And just, I don't think you need to, you know, it's not like he's been in Jacksonville so long that you can't, you have to wait till the end of the season and, you know, fire him the noble way. I think you just, you just go in front of the, you know, the, the fans and you just say, Hey, I just, you know, I think, I think we give the team to an assistant and, uh, you know, <laughs> we say, we say thanks for trying urban, but, um, you know, we're, we're, we're moving to new things. And, you know, if your heart isn't into, uh, you know, if, if you can't, if you can't run this team and, you know, work with this new quarterback, I mean, we, we, you know, we, we, we got to get Trevor Lawrence going, right? Like we don't, we don't have time to, you know, to, I mean, I, I just say, I just think, you know, once he's lost the respect of the Jaguars locker room, I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to get it back. And I know he apologized to the team, but it's, it's, I don't know how you could fix this. And I think, I think it's just, you know, cut ties and move on. Yeah. I mean, even Chad, uh, Jags owner, Chad Khan said, Urban Meyer, he must regain our trust and respect. And that's not something you don't want to be getting called out by the team owner in your first four weeks as the coach. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really bad situation. And, the the one thing that really I'm not even a Jags fan, but I am I'm beyond frustrated for for the city of Jacksonville that cares about this football team because Urban Meyer said that he didn't even travel home like and you know we saw he didn't travel home with Jaguars after that loss to uh, to Cincinnati which I mean you could have won that football game but Urban Meyer said he stayed back and saw his grandchildren I mean if you've been on social media you've seen he was not with his grandchildren he was you know he was at his his 
uh, restaurant and you know he was you know partying a lot and you know being in situations you should not be as a head coach that's that's on the second longest losing streak in NFL history I mean you, you're just not focused I mean as an NFL head coach you make the you make the promise to your team that I'm dedicating my 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 life to to making this football team better I mean I understand he's a human and you know you got to see your family and stuff but uh, go look at around the league. Go look anywhere else. I mean, when when Kevin Stefanski went back to Minnesota, did he did he stay overnight because he wanted to hang out with his family? No, he, he traveled back to Cleveland because he's that's his football team and he's he's wanting to make this football team better. Um, Urban Meyer simply is not invested in that. He should have been on the plane watching film, seeing how can we how did we lose this game? How do we get better? Instead, his mind was elsewhere. I mean, who's to say that that's not even what he's thinking about during the football game? You know, it it just it shows where his priorities are at. He doesn't care about making this football team better. And as as a Jackson, if if I'm a Jacksonville player, I just I feel disrespected. You know, I'm investing my time, my energy, my life into you know into this game, and my leader, my coach, isn't doing the same for me. So how do you how do you expect these Jacksonville players to be motivated for a guy like Urban Meyer? And you know, like you said, you, he hasn't been in Jacksonville long. So if you want to get rid of him. You don't have to do it the nice way. You can you can cut ties whenever you want. But like I said, if you if you're starting from scratch again, you know, like I, I understand Urban Meyer is not in a good spot and hasn't really called any good games. But if you if you cut him right now and you're going with an assistant coach or something, there's a serious chance you go 0 and 17. Matchup wise, there's there's a few games you could get a win out of. You're you're going on to play Seattle. You have to play the Bills. Uh, you have to play the, the Patriots who just played a great game, the Rams. I mean, the only wins you could get are divisional wins, really, or you got to match up against the Jets, but you have to you have to get this Jacksonville team a win. You really have to, and I don't know if it's the right decision to, you know, cut him before he gets a win because it's it's just got to be so hard to start from scratch when you're already at, you know, pretty much the bottom. So I, I don't know what's I, – I, I don't own a team, so I don't know what's the best situation to – you know, dig this team out of the dirt right now. But um, Urban Meyer seriously needs to switch something around. So the Bleacher Report is reporting that uh, Jags head coach says he won't step down and explain not flying back with team after Thursday night football was chance to clear his head. When he says that, I, I respect that. But, I mean, you know, ownership, I understand that. I just, I remember the storyline before this was that he had health problems and so I, I I wonder you know when you have health problems and then you take on an NFL head coaching job I mean it's just you know you've made your money you've made your legacy is you know is it really worth it for Urban Meyer and so I I I understand where he's coming from I just think that um you know I I think that you know first and foremost I think while he's still in the job he needs to focus on you know getting Trevor Lawrence ready it's it's tough because you did use your your number one overall pick on a guy like Trevor Lawrence, and you know you you wanted you want him to be in a comfortable situation when he's coming in the league. Uh, so often we get these rookie quarterbacks that just get put into a, a tornado, and you know this this might be one of the worst situations that we've seen for such a high high overall pick um, in a while. I mean I know guys constantly get head coaches switched up, but you don't have coaches that don't fly back with the team after a loss and you know get caught dancing with with you know people. It's just it's it's not something that you can have for a team that just spent the number one overall pick on your you know hopefully franchise quarterback and Jacksonville's biggest problem right now it's it's simply coaching I mean you you saw that Trevor Trevor Lawrence was playing his heart out and you know you can see that that even though the guys don't have the support behind them they're they're playing hard but um coaching coaching just needs to get better and one other team that I really think has kind of had an issue with coaching and I didn't really like how the game was called last week was was Vic Fangio with the Denver Broncos and I get you're playing a tough team in with uh Baltimore it's a team that seriously has a chance to you know get a top three seed in the AFC so uh it, it's your first real matchup but you you really strayed away from your identity I know you had a problem with the quarterback issues this game but um this was a very underwhelming game by the Denver Broncos this week yeah I, I mean I, I agree with you in the fact that I mean, when Drew Locke came into the game against the Ravens, that they should have stretched the field more. I mean, they they could have and they should have, and um, you know they were down and they were behind, and you know I don't I don't know why they weren't trying to you know basically 
um, you know, air, air, air attack, you know, attack, attack the Ravens through the air. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really think the, the biggest, the biggest winners of this game was the Baltimore secondary. They played a fantastic game. Um, but I, I think that Denver, Denver could be in trouble for the next few weeks or even like offensively, you, you lost KJ Hamler and Jerry Judy at the same time, two receivers that bring a very important skill set to stretching the field. Uh, you have Tim Patrick and Cortland Sutton, who are in their own rights, very, very talented football players. I mean, I, I will, you know, die on a hill arguing that Tim Patrick's one of the most underrated players I've watched in the last few years. But they're very similar receivers. They bring similar skill sets. They don't, you know, they're both big body guys that can make a catch in traffic. Um, but once you lose KJ Hamler and lose Jerry Judy, you kind of lose the ability to take the top off of a defense. I know Sutton, you know, Sutton beat the beat the safety over the top twice in that game, but Teddy Bridgewater missed one and Drew Locke missed another. So uh, you weren't able to connect on those deep balls. And uh, I get Sutton's not as fast as Hamler is, and that's why you kind of you you have brought, you brought in Hamler because he is that guy that pr- has proven he can take the top off and you know chase those deep balls. But once you lose them, it, it really shows how how effective they are to your offense, even if they aren't putting up big numbers and. It's just it frustrated me to see that you you were having a like a decently successful game on the ground. I mean, both of your running backs were averaging like six six and a half yards of carry, and I get you were down by a possession or two, but it was it was still a game that was somewhat in control. It's not like Baltimore at at that point in the game was you know just beating the brakes off of you. You you were able to move the ball when you were running it. It's just the thing that fr- like. This game made me upset because it made me feel like I was watching the Denver Broncos from last year. Not able to convert on third downs. Not able to hit the open man. Defensively, it was you can't really ask for a better game for the run game. But you know, guy Patrick Sertain, he struggled that game. Um, there you, you made uh you let James Prochet look like a seriously good receiver. I mean, James Prochet had like seventy five receiving yards, and uh, it's. It, PS2, you know, probably had the worst game we've seen out of him so far, but, you know, he's a rookie. The rookies have those types of games, but Simmons kind of, he made one great play on the ball early on Darren Waller, but I think ultimately, uh, or not Waller, excuse me, Mark Andrews, um, I think ultimately he he lost that matchup against uh, Mark Andrews. The biggest thing I took away from this game is Lamar Jackson is proving doubters wrong. You know, last year they were saying, Oh, is all you have to do to stop Lamar is take away his running ability. Okay, Denver held him to 25 yards rushing. He went out in there and threw for 300 yards. He, he won that football game. And as a Browns fan, I hate to admit it, you know, he, he can do both. And I even I even was a criti- uh, critic of it. Uh, but he's, he's proven me wrong week in, week out. So I'm, I'm giving Lamar's credit, and I have to because uh, that's, that's an incredibly talented secondary. You, you understood that. You know, the defensive line was able to contain him and he he just sat in the pocket and delivered. So it was it was a very impressive game for me from Baltimore, but um, a very, very sad offensive and defensive showing for Denver that game. I, I think that's true. With, with Lamar Jackson, I noticed their offensive system is they're trying to make it very QB friendly, you know, with the way they set up the offense. It's a lot of high percentage passes in their offense. I mean, they're not asking him to, you know, I mean, I mean, early in his career, you know, they said one thing he can do is deliver the deep ball. They're not asking him to deliver the deep ball. They're asking him to deliver these high percentage balls, you know, have their receivers get very open and, you know, which is, which is different. I mean, receiver play hasn't been as good for the Ravens, but um, yeah, I mean, Lamar Jackson is dangerous in this new offense. Yeah, I agree. And I, I want to give Greg Roman some credit as well, because he was heavily criticized the last couple of years on not giving Lamar the opportunity to make those high percentage passes. You know, he's, he was getting heavily criticized on his route concepts that he was drawing up. And Lamar struggled throwing to the outside of the field uh, early on in his career. And Greg Roman was drawing a majority of the passes to the outside of the field. So it's, it looks like he's, you know, finally sat down, done his homework and figured out the best, the best, uh, the best passing offense to bring out the best Lamar. And, um, I really, I really have a lot of respect for, for Greg Roman for, you know, finally figuring that out. Although I hate to see it as a Browns fan, but, um, as a football fan, it's, it's really something impressive to see. One last thing I wanted to ask you about, Ed, the last play of the game. Uh, we all know what happened. Ravens had 96 rushing yards. They needed four more, uh, to, to tie the record for the longest streak of 100 consecutive, uh, 100 yard consecutive games. 
What what do you think of the Ravens going for that? I know Vic Fangio was very, very upset about that. Uh, I know a lot of Broncos fans are very upset about that. Um, what what are your thoughts? I, I mean, I, you know, you and I were at that game and we had left the game and, you know, if we're, if we're left, you know, the game's over and, you know, that, that, that that's proof right there. The game was over that we had left and, you know, they were, they were doing that. So, uh, I, I think you show respect to the other team. You know, I, I think you show respect for the other team. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a division matchup. It's not a, it's not a bad blood matchup. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, they disrespected the Broncos on their home turf. Yeah, I mean, this is one. I this is one where I'm a little bit torn on. I, I I like to you know look at things from both sides, and as a Bronco, you know, somebody that supports the Broncos, and you know, as a, as a football fan, it, it is a little bit disrespectful, you know, especially on Denver's home turf. Game's over, you know. This is a game that had a lot of injuries in it. You don't want to risk any more injuries, but. If I if I put myself in say a Ravens fan shoes or say say Cleveland is you know three four yards away from getting this record, I would maybe be a little bit upset if they didn't try and get it because you know in a year is anybody gonna remember that that one of the runs was on the last play of the game? I don't think they will. Was it you know was it? It it was not great sportsmanship, not in the slightest. But um John John Harbaugh uh you know he he said something pretty funny uh. You know, Vic Fangio, he, he said, you know, game's over. Why are you, why are you doing that? John Harbaugh said to that, what, what were you trying to do at the end? Score a 16-point touchdown, uh, saying that the game the game has been over for a long time. So um, it doesn't matter what point of the game they're running it at. So it, that, that was I, – I can see where both are coming from. Uh, it's just you don't want to see that as a Denver fan. Or really, if you don't support Baltimore, you really don't want to see that. But – uh, I understand where the frustration comes from, and I understand where the urge to run that comes from. It's 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 really one that I can see is up for grabs, whether whether you support it or not. In the future, though, I just I think in a game like that where Denver sustained a handful of injuries, Baltimore's already really beat up. That's that's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing to do, especially for a record that's not one that's heavily talked about. I mean, the most consecutive games with a hundred yards rushing. Um, I don't. I've never really mentioned that or, you know, talked about that as being a record that people view for dominance. But, you know, I guess I guess that's just something that the Ravens pride themselves in. And, you know, they felt the need to go for it. But I, I do I do want to thank everybody for tuning into another episode of Blitzcast. Uh, I had a great time with you, Ed. Uh, it was it was a great week. You know, hopefully next week we, we get some great matchups like this again. I, I really think that Next week is, is going to be a big statement week for a lot of teams. If the Cardinals can continue to prove, you know, they knocked off the Rams, if they can prove that they really could be, you know, that dominant team in the NFL, I, I wasn't really giving them the credit they deserve. You know, they're, they're shutting a lot of people up. Kyler Murray's playing some great football, and Cleveland's got a great matchup against the Chargers. And, you know, there, there's, some, there's some really good football coming up next week. But we're going we're gonna to hop into the segment of the show where – uh, Ed's going to be conducting an interview with Ryan Arbor from the Oklahoman. We're going to hop over to that, and I uh, I wanted to thank everybody for tuning in, and have a great rest of your day. like to welcome our guest, Ryan Aber from the Oklahoman. Ryan, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are you doing? Pretty good, man. Uh, so let's get to, to it. What's your prediction for this Red Rover showdown? Yeah, I, I think like uh, most every other OU game, at least this year, except for the Western Carolina game, I think it's going to be close. I, I, you, you look at the history of this rivalry, and, and even when things are uh, maybe look like uh, they're, they're going to be uh, a pretty wide margin, they wind up being uh, pretty tight. We've seen a lot of upsets. But uh, I, I really think OU is going to find a way to, to come ahead in this one, but I, I do think it's going to be yet another close game for the Sooners. Who's the Texas player that scares you the most? Uh, it, it's hard not to say Bijan Robinson, given the way that he's performed this year, given the way that he ended last year with those two monster games. He, he's a guy who has a chance to uh, carry Texas' offense and uh, be a guy, I'm not going to say single-handedly can win a game, but uh, certainly one that can do a lot of damage and go a long way toward helping Texas win this game. It's a long, been a long time since Texas had a running back 
who is as dynamic as, as B. John Robinson. They haven't had uh, uh, a thousand yard rusher in, uh, I think it's four seasons, five seasons since uh, Deontay Foreman. Uh, and, and it certainly looks like Bijan Robinson is on on track to be that guy uh, this year. So have to go with him for sure. Who is Spencer Rattler right now for the Sooners? Oh gosh, that's that's hard because you know I think a lot of the problems that, that Oklahoma's offense has had uh, to this point have been uh, for reasons outside of of what Spencer Rattler is doing now. I think there's been some times where Spencer Rattler hasn't been certainly at his best, uh, but against Kansas State, I, I thought he played his, not only his, his best game of the year, but maybe the best overall game for him uh, as a Sooner, uh, but he's got to make decisions uh, more consistently. Uh, he, he certainly did that well against K-State, didn't force, think, force throws, into areas where they were going to hurt him. Even the interception that he threw was uh, virtually a, a really good punt because it came on third down. Uh, even if he, he throws it away there, uh, it, it's hard to see a much better scenario than Penn and K-State inside uh, the 10. I think it was the, the, their own seven uh, where that interception happened. Certainly Spencer Rattler doesn't have the dynamic personality, the dynamic leadership style that uh, Jalen Hurts, Kyler Murray, and Baker Mayfield have had before him, but he's certainly got a lot of talent. He's just got to uh, hone that a little bit. I, I don't think he's the uh, the guy that everybody talked about as, as being the Heisman Trophy front runner. I think he's not going to get back into that conversation at least for a while. Uh, but he's the guy who can be a really, really good college football quarterback and has some potential uh, beyond that, uh, but he's still awfully young and uh, you know still feeling his way around that role. How does this defensive front rank in recent memory? Oh, it's uh, got to be the best OU defensive front in quite a while for, for a lot of reasons. One, you look at the... Uh, uh, the, the front line, the guys that they throw out there, you know, Perry on Winfrey there in the middle, Jalen Redmond when he's healthy uh, at one of the, the tackle spots, and, and then uh, Nick Benito coming off the edge, um, and then Isaiah Thomas. I mean, they, they, those all uh, would be some of the best OU defensive linemen over the last decade for sure, and certainly the best uh, defensive line since Gerald McCoy was there for the Sooners, but it goes far beyond that. They've developed uh, some depth that's allowed them to withstand the, the loss of Jalen Redmond over the last few weeks, and uh, they're, they're developing guys that they have just haven't done over the last decade. Um, I, I think certainly they got to do a better job than they did a week ago against K-State at uh, bringing pressure and putting pressure on the quarterback consistently when you talk about this game coming up against Texas. Uh, but you feel a whole lot better about it uh, than you have in, in quite a while just because, like I mentioned, the, the depth there is so different from what the Sooners have put out there in recent years. Do you like to have a more compact back with speed in Eric Gray? Yeah, I, I think certainly Eric Gray has added a dimension to their offense that uh, that they've, uh, I'm not going to say been lacking because they've had some really good running backs and, and really good um, uh, tandems uh, back there, although I, I think the Kennedy Brooks and, and Eric Gray tandem has a chance to be as good as any probably since, uh, since the Samaj P. Ryan Joe Mixon days. Now, they haven't been able to block very well up front, which is limited opportunities for both of those guys. But Eric Gray's ability to, to be shifty, make plays in open space, and also be a threat to catch out of the backfield has certainly given them a, a different dynamic this year. It's interesting to see that Lincoln Riley has stuck with Eric Gray as the starter and put him out there uh, you know, uh, to start off uh, each of those games. And Kennedy Brooks, has sometimes struggled to, to get carries, although last week they finally went back to Kennedy Brooks as sort of 
uh, running back 1A. I think Brooks is a little bit better at uh, making things happen in the run game where uh, where there's not much space to go. We saw that on a couple of his runs uh, last week, and I, I think he'll continue to do that. So I think Eric Gray is going to have a, a really significant role in this offense, especially given the fact they only have two scholarship running backs at this point. But uh, I do think Kennedy Brooks's role is going to continue to grow, and uh, he's going to be that guy who's probably going to be their leader in carries when it's all said and done. Is this a weaker offensive line than in recent memory? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about it. And uh, that's sort of been head-scratching because we talked to Bill Biedenboe before the season, and he talked about how much farther along this group was than any that he's had in recent memory, how it reminded him of that great group they had a couple years ago where four of their guys got drafted, and the fifth one, Creed Humphrey, was still going to be there for a couple years, and he wound up, uh, being a high pick uh, last year by the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, it, but it hadn't come together that way. I think certainly there's a lot of talent in this group, but you look at, especially at the, the tackle spots, what they're putting out there uh, now, they're still trying to figure out exactly what's the best combination for them and, and how to make things work uh, because they haven't had much success, especially with Anton Harrison. Although I think it looks like Wanya Morris is going to get uh, more and more playing time there at that spot uh, here moving forward. Uh, Tyrese Robinson is a guy who's been really good at guard, but uh, moving to tackle is, uh, one, taking him away from that spot, and, and two, I don't think they've been quite as good at tackle as they would have wanted, but they haven't been able to develop that depth there. So, um, yeah, this this is certainly the weakest one that I can remember during Bill Biedenboe's tenure there. Uh, still a lot of talent, but they just haven't been able to come together as a group. I think they played better against Kansas State than they had uh, all season outside of the one that first drive, which was just disastrous, and, and two, uh, the penalties, which they've got to get cleaned up, especially the false start and just sort of dumb penalties rather than the, the penalties of aggressiveness. Uh, if they can take that away, and continue to get better uh, you know, as a group, they've got a chance to be pretty solid. But this isn't going to be like uh, that group a few years ago or even the one with, uh, with Orlando Brown and, and some of those other guys that uh, really were among the best in college football. Does Oklahoma State scare you at the end of the season? Oh, I'd say a little bit just because they're, they're Oklahoma State and you've got to respect uh, certainly what, uh, Mike Gundy has been able to do there, especially on the offensive side and what they've become uh, defensively, which is a whole lot better. You know, as, as much improvement as uh, Oklahoma has gone through on the defensive side, uh, Oklahoma State has certainly uh, done that as well. Uh, you know, I don't think they've got the, quite the dynamic quarterback that they've had in recent years uh, there with Spencer Sanders. You know, we'll see how he continues to develop uh, over the year, although uh, his, uh, his dual threat uh, ability certainly gives them a, a little bit different dynamic there. And you know that they're always going to have playmakers at, at receiver, especially uh, they, they don't have the, the Blitnikoff type of guy, but they've got a lot of guys who can be dangerous, and especially if they're able to stay healthy there uh, late in the year. They're having some health issues right now, but a great start for the Cowboys for sure being able to go on the road, beat Boise State, get the wins the last couple weeks over K-State and Baylor. Certainly, this the way it's going so far shapes up to be a, a pretty good bedlam uh, here at the end of the regular season here in a couple months. Is this Texas game the toughest in their way to get to the playoffs? Uh, I would probably say so uh, when you look at the way things are right now. Obviously, it would have said Iowa State uh, before the season. That dynamic has changed uh, a little bit with what the Cyclones have done, although I still think the Cyclones are, uh, are a team that can give you fits. But when you look at the, the rest of their schedule, the way it lines out with the seven games they've got remaining, I, I think the Longhorns, to me, are the, the most dangerous just because of, one, what this game is, what this rivalry is, what it's always been. Uh, Bijan Robinson 
At number two, you've got a quarterback in Casey Thompson, who is uh, an Oklahoma guy. His dad played quarterback for the Sooners. Certainly will be a lot of talk about that. He's got a, a, a bit of his chip on his shoulder about that, no doubt. And then uh, just overall what Texas is, is done. Uh, I know the, the phrase Texas is back gets thrown around a lot in uh, both serious and joking manners. But Steve Sarkeesian, after they lost that, that game earlier this year against Arkansas, certainly seems to have them heading in a much more positive direction. And there's really no team in the Big 12 that can compete just athlete-wise with Oklahoma the way that Texas can. Is Oklahoma still your favorite to win the Big 12? Yeah, to me, unless until somebody knocks them off and, and gives you a reason to completely write, write them off, uh, OU's got to be the favorite, even though they aren't playing to their potential, even though they're playing all these close games. You know, last year they they were 0-2 entering uh, the, this game, the third third game of the season, third conference game of the season for them, uh, and, and then they went on a winning streak to, to win it again and, and come from sort of out of nowhere to keep that uh, Big 12 streak alive. So uh, the, the Sooners are, are the favorite, I, I think, now until they're eliminated uh, from the conference race, and uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon with this group. As, as much as they've struggled, I, I still think that they're going to make that Big 12 championship game in Arlington, and uh, certainly Lincoln Riley has, has a proven track record at, at winning big games, especially down there. How do you feel about Oklahoma being in the SEC? Well, I think there's a lot of folks around here who are really excited about it. I, I, I you certainly see why, especially given the way that their schedule plays out really every year. Uh, but especially the years where Texas uh, would be a designated home game for them. Uh, OU's home schedule can sometimes be a little bit lacking. Uh, certainly won't be the case in the SEC. But I, I think also the fact that uh, recruiting will be affected. Uh, it's been really hard to recruit big-time defensive players to Norman for Lincoln Riley and Bob Seeks before him. Uh, especially on the defensive line and in the secondary. I think that gets a whole lot easier. I think it changes the dynamic of recruiting uh, down in Texas, even though the Sooners have had a lot of success down in Texas uh, before and after uh, all of the conference uh, realignments that they've gone through. But certainly this opens up some more doors. Now it's not just Texas A&M that can recruit those guys who really want to go play in the SEC. Now all of a sudden it's not only A&M, but Texas and Oklahoma who can go down there. But these are also a lot of programs that OU has not faced a whole lot. They played Alabama a, a pretty fair amount of times, but outside of that, they haven't faced Georgia much. They haven't faced LSU much. Played them in a couple, each one of those in a couple bowl games, but uh, haven't played Arkansas much, even though Arkansas is, is really close uh, to, to Oklahoma. So it, it's going to be fun for a lot of reasons. I'm just ready to figure out what that timeline is going to be like and uh, so we can start talking in a concrete terms instead of you know when it happens, whether that's 2023 or 2025. Ryan, can you tell us where we can find your work? Yeah, you can uh, check out my work at oklahoman.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at R-Y-A-B-E-R, Ryan Aber. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on.